What's up, everybody? It's Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief. And together, this is our What's the Headline podcast. What's happening, man? I know last week you were sick. You had the Macy Gray meets Barry White remix in your voice. Uh, this this week, I'm a little bit more like Q-tip, you know, a little bit more nasal, a <laughs> little bit stuffed up. Not, not, not Q-tip on the people's instinctive travels, but more like Q-tip on the get it together for the Beastie Boys, like extra nasal. <laughs> um, so for all the folks out there watching and listening, we appreciate you. But uh, bear with me. Hopefully, by the time we we tape the next episode, I'll be back at 100%. But, you uh, got that raspy Jadakus uh, logo <laughs> on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, I got my orange juice. You know, Shout out to Wiz Khalifa. No kush, but I got my orange juice. So pushing through this, man. How are you doing, though? I'm good, man. I was I was gonna share with folks, you know, y'all might not realize it, but on our off time, Jake and I will have freestyle battles, uh, one to be exact. And I wouldn't call it much of a battle since I demolished his ass. Oh. But there, there was a show. Uh, <laughs> there was a show that that was at it was at the hotel bar of the W Hotel, right? That's where that took yeah, place. That's right, oh that's man, right. like I was because because some of my friends you know especially from my younger years of high school and college will tell you that you know maybe i get a drink in me or something and i can you know i, I could freestyle a little bit you know <laughs> the one bar at a time yo the the most pathetic <laughs> you told me it was hilarious and and for anyone that listens to this reggie is one of the most competitive people i've ever met like um you know this morning i challenged him on a headline and i could feel him being like you challenged me on a headline and before <laughs> i could even before i could even throw the alternatives that i thought that i would he came with like three more like that is just reggie and you know i'm i'm my basketball days are behind me so we've only ever really competed apart from just like you know creative competition in our work we've gone bowling one time and i think you beat me by like three pins and it was you know it wasn't a, neither one of us were bowling that great but the intensity of that was insane um and so you hit me it was 2018 and you were like you know i was coming up from philly we were going to some event i, I can't even remember you were like tonight you you better you better bring some battle bars because i'm gonna bust your ass awesome. <laughs> and you were like you know you were like get eight bars you have to have eight bars and i showed up with the sloppiest you know worst i don't even know if i got four but it was uh it was rough man and you you were you know you didn't even dignify me with like a hey nice try you were just like okay yeah that's what i thought <laughs> you know yeah that was hilarious man and that bowling was definitely playoffs like it was playoff mentality for both of us yeah um, i look forward to the rematch and i'm not taking it easy on you just because it's your wedding party man like that's you know, that's man. hilarious yeah man I, i'm sure you and i will close the night down at some point you know what I mean? <laughs> everyone else will be gone and you and i will be there you know with one light on just 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 bowling i didn't know you did you bowl in high school man uh not for the high school we didn't have a high school team but okay. i started bowling competitively when i was eight Okay. And um, did that for 10 years at a, at an outside league, you know, at my high, my average was like a 171. My, oh. my boy who was on my team, we bowled together like, like fall, winter and summer, like for like 10 years. One of my closest friends ended up um, doing, getting a 300 at one point, oh, wow. um, maybe five, six years ago. But, um, but you, how about you? Yeah. I mean, my, my best games, I've, I've, I've broken uh, two 
you know, 200, but like, you know, there was a period of time, there's a, there's a bowling alley in Philly, um, that I, they used to have like cheap nights on Wednesdays and Sundays and in 2007, eight, nine, 10, like that was my thing. And there was always a live DJ. Um, that was the spot. And, uh, you know, peanut butter wolf would do concerts there. Schooly D Dame funk. Like it was, it was a spot. And in those days, you know, I was averaging, you know, 170, 180, like on a pretty consistent basis. Now, if I, you know, am up over 150, I'm pretty happy with myself. But I find that like a score like that is decent when you're just with people that are, you know, drinking and eating tater tots and stuff like that. But when I compete with Reggie Williams, man, I need to, you know, I got to put in my reps. I got to get some practice in. I find it hilarious that you call me competitive and yet you casually say that you average more than I did. So for a small, good. for a small period of time. It's, it's no, good. that's if like, I said 150. You would have been at 150 to 160. Is that how it goes? It's man? one of those like how much you bench things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but are, do you true at any point in your life? Have you ever owned your own bowling ball? Oh, yeah, of course, man. I had a bright red bowling ball and my shoes, of course. A glove and a glove? Uh, yep. Oh, I man. The whole nine, man. Yeah. You're like John Tuturo in uh, Big Lebowski. I mean, know? I was in high school, but yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's what's up. We will get a rematch. For the longest, I asked you for a rematch in that time in 2019, and you said no, um, which is very topical because there's going to be something we discussed today in this episode that it's I think is crazy. very relevant. It's not, ain't going to be no rematch. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's not like that. Yeah. All right, man. We got a lot to talk about. This is one you of do. the, this is one of the bigger weeks in terms of hip hop news in quite some time, but uh, you dropped something into the document. I saw last minute that I think is the appropriate way to kick things off. Um, we got a significant anniversary today on the day we're recording March 31st. Yeah, it's one of those like where were you moments and um it's probably the biggest one that I can think of in I would say the last you know for me the last 10 years as it pertains to hip hop of you know 4 years ago today we lost Nipsey Hussle and I remember you and I texting each other it happened just moments after the NCAA championship if I'm not mistaken right Nah, um, I want to I want to know where you were, but I remember vividly. It was during the Duke game, and I think the Sweet Sixteen. It's okay. either Sweet Sixteen or the Final Eight. It was during that game. They ended up losing that game. Uh, I was sitting on the couch with my son. We were both eating our favorite pizza, which is a, a Sunday tradition. It was a Sunday. And it was the weekend when I'd flown back from L.A. and uh, my wife and I had, you know, decided to kind of call it quits. So it was mm. a really, really insane uh, day. You know what I mean? On a, on, a, on a lot of levels. And you first texted me and said, Nipsey Hussle has been shot. It doesn't look good from the photographs. And then, you know, like a half an hour or so later, like um, they, they uh, announced that he had died. So. It was crazy, man. Uh, what about you? Where were you when you found out? Yes, yeah, it's, it's funny, man. I mean, I was in a totally different state of mind than I am now. Um, you know, I was living, you know, I had a had a studio apartment in West Philly and I was sitting there. It was an incredible game. I remember the lead kept changing and I'm not a, you know, I'm nowhere near the basketball fan you are, let alone college. And I was invested. And it's funny. I mean, it just goes to show you, I couldn't remember if it was the championship, but I was watching the game and saw that and texted you. And then I wrote the story. Um, 
which was really challenging. I think that was, it was a Sunday night, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, in my mind, it felt like a Sunday night. And um, yeah, I, I wrote it and it was one of those like, you know, you you knew Nipsey, yeah? I met Nipsey, Nipsey a couple times. I wouldn't say that I knew him, but I did meet him a couple times. He came to 106 in Park once and we chopped it up in the green room. And then I saw him uh, one time at the Rock Nation brunch and just reminded him that we'd met and how much I appreciated his movement. And this is, you know, as we all know, Nipsey was not as big, just, you know, just let's, let's call it a hundred. Like he was not as big um, in life as he became in death. And this was, this brunch was probably 2014 or so, okay. 2014, 2015. So, you know, a couple of years before he passed and he was still on his grind he had put out Crenshaw yeah. Um, you know, the, the DJ drama mixtape that Jay bought that he sold for a hundred dollars a piece, even though it was available for free. And Jay bought Jay-Z bought, I think, a thousand copies of it or a hundred copies. Hundred maybe. 100, Did 100 you end up buying one? I didn't buy a copy. Um, but I was I had gone to the 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 marathon continued store, um, actually maybe like five or six months before he passed, and bought some things there and came out like, you know, feeling really proud that I had some like a marathon clothing because I just, I love Nipsey's movement. I love his music, but, but I love his movement equally, if not even more, you know? Yeah. I, um, I never met Nipsey in the flesh. I did his very first press bio in, I want to say 2006. Um, Johnny Shipes from cinematic was, was working with Nip at the time. And this was before it was just, you know, weeks months before he ended up signing that that deal with epic that led to a few singles but no album and i did the bio for him i was hired to do it and i remember speaking to this guy who had a very small following on myspace but i thought you know at the time i like you i'm a big fan of of what i'll just call west coast gangster rap and i love what he was doing in terms of reviving a sound that i thought was missing at least in the major major label market and Nip was cool and he was inspirational then. I mean, we were very close in age. And then years later, there was a period of time where I had in a really strange form and fashion become cool with Ving Rames. And Ving Rames connected me with Nipsey on something. Um, I remember the three of us being on a call. This would have been like 2009, 2010. And that that wasn't as meaningful of a conversation just in terms of the the magnitude of it. But like you, I really came to appreciate Nipsey and I love what he represented, not only in terms of ownership and, and empowerment and black empowerment and financial empowerment, but also he was somebody who had a lot of doors, I feel like, closed in his face. And in the end, he was able to to build up to a victory lap, you know, quite literally. And that day... You know, the jarringness of of seeing those images and getting that news all of a sudden and just the way that we consume tragedy in this time, but also to know that this is a father and a husband and a brother and a son and all of these things and somebody who had really lived to become such a role model and have that taken away so quickly. And yeah, that day. And I remember when when the story ended and was up, I mean, obviously this was pre-pandemic, I um I went out for a few drinks. I just needed to calm my nerves and like literally needed to, I needed to be around people. And uh, I always think of that day, actually funny enough, yesterday I just drove by the place that I went for a drink um, and it brought me back. Every time I see it, I think of that night. So, Yeah, man, you talk about 
his message of empowerment, uh, you know, I, I think the thing that resonated with me even beyond that is that his grind was independent. You know, yeah. he he had signed a deal, but like he he truly built his own movement for years before you know getting that major label deal. And it's bittersweet that that the album came out. Um, I believe it came out pos posthumously, right? Um, no, it didn't. No, it it was, just come out. It had yeah. just come out. Yeah, uh, which you know, uh, which we see a lot too, right? Uh, Big had his victory lap with completing life after death, and it came out just two weeks after he passed. Um, Dillo with donuts like happened yeah. at the exact same time. I mean, it it does it does work that way. And Nip saw that he was on such a crazy trajectory, and you know, Grammy nomination, and yeah, just uh, a really one of those moments and then you know obviously uh less than a year later we were in the thick of the pandemic yeah you know so you know he had as i said i saw the the marathon store and he bought several properties in that crenshaw area it was my first time spending meaningful time in crenshaw and you could see the gentrification in progress you know it's still very much a a, a very multicultural neighborhood but very different than it was even five years before that but to see him have that acumen to uh, purchase, I think he owned that entire strip where the Marathon uh, store is and where he uh, met his demise. But, you know, just seeing that kind of mentality, that kind of like hustle, like truly like living up to his name or his name embodying his spirit resonated deeply with me. You know, um, you know, shout out to Johnny Shives, too. You know, you mentioned that, that he worked with Nip early on. A lot of folks might not know who he is, but he has a company called um, Cinematic Music Group. He worked with Big Crit, um, Joey Badass, Smoke Dizza, Smoke Dizza Mick Jenkins, um, and there's some, is it LaRussell's now too, right? Is he working with LaRussell also? That I don't know, but I mean, he's done a bunch. He's He's been very successful right now with artists out of Florida and Alabama. Um, you know, just a host of a lot of these guys that have been making noise. But yeah, I mean, Johnny, you, again, just to like talk about independence. I mean, he has really helped build a company that has allowed artists to outside of the traditional label system, you know, um, own their own their works and do great things with it and he's empowered a lot of people that i respect in this industry and it's just uh you know i still do work from time to time with that company and good good stuff yeah for sure well we're gonna get back to nip because we got some new music from him today uh um, yeah. or you know some unreleased music to be more specific but um you know rest in peace four years later um you know let me let me ask you this though so this happens a lot too but I didn't. I haven't seen it mushroom to the extent that it did. Why? Why is it that you think that it takes uh, someone dying for a message like Nipsey's to really reach its maximum potential? Because the outpouring of love for him when he passed was different than I can remember in a long time. It was at a, a greater scale. It lasted longer. I mean, you, you said it already or alluded to it that news cycles are very quick these days you know things come and go within a couple of days even uh you know like with uh with artists who had achieved like takeoff but the nipsey thing man like there was such an outpouring and for such a long time what why do you think that was i think you alluded to one half of it a moment ago just in terms of attention i mean nowadays you know you could put out a great album in the very next week there's some other new music that might not be a great album that's taking that taking that real estate of that conversation and with Nipsey, I feel like 
people just sat down. You had to process it. And if you only knew the name or you only knew, you know, um, last time that I checked or like whatever the new single was, all that was you were reading, whether you were reading Twitter timeline or you're reading articles, or you're listening to podcasts, there was just so much perspective to understand. And in the case of Nipsey, the more you understood, the more you're going to buy in just because his story is so remarkable and his message is so authentic. So that's half of it. And then the other half is, you know, that 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 J curve that he was on, like, you know, it happened after finally a great album. I mean, he had put out great mixtapes, but he was watching it translate in the traditional release setting. He's getting Grammy nominations. You know, he's got the woman of his dreams. He's got, and I feel like people mourned Nipsey longer just to kind of see that through. Um, because if you don't, that's where the story ends. And I feel like people empower themselves enough to just honor him last week. You know, I walked through a mall and, you know, you see it still to this day in like three different stores, you'll see Nipsey tribute shirts and you see it with XXX extension and different people, but Nipsey really represented a generation like that. Yeah. I think it was a testament to his grind also. You yeah. know, uh, I think that that, 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 that is what resonated with Jay-Z because Jay, as we know, you know, had a lot of trials and tribulations in the beginning of his career and, and and had to do it himself in order to become who he became. I think that he clearly saw a lot of himself in Nipsey. And, you know, I used to use this example quite a bit when, um, I used to use this example quite a bit when uh, talking to folks about um, what we were trying to do, AFH, you know, and that we were trying to build true fans. And the example I used was Nipsey and contrasted it with, uh, say Trinidad James, and this is no shade on him, but his song. Uh, so his song, All Gold Everything, did roughly 100 million uh, streams on YouTube. And on YouTube, you know, the 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 rule of thumb is you get about $1,000 per million streams. So All Gold Everything generated approximately $100,000 for Trinidad, Trinidad James. Nipsey, on the other hand, sold 1,000 copies of a mixtape for $100 each. So far less volume, but exact same revenue when you when you do the math. And that to me is a reflection of a true fan base rather than people who are fleeting in for the, the thing of the moment. And so I think that that movement, first of all, it was a lot of people who truly cared dearly about him and his movement. And that's the outpouring we heard. And I think that that was contagious. I think that people started to understand that and then they, they, they dipped into the message themselves and uh and saw its power too so that's a really yeah i would agree with that very well you know it's yeah. astute so uh rest in peace to nipsey um you know much love to his family and to all the fans that continue to support him and the, the great music that continues to come out he had a great song with dr dre last year um diamond mind yeah produced by alchemist incredible um so but yeah, before we get too far into it, um, if you are listening and have made it this far, please like, comment, subscribe, hit the notification bell, whatever you can. Um, we appreciate the support. We've been getting a lot of great comments recently. We try and engage with those. They're deeply appreciated. Your time is appreciated. And so uh, if you can do that, even more appreciated. Absolutely. So big week music-wise, we've had a ton of stuff going on. Um Let's get into this because one of the things that happened during the pandemic was Versus. And uh, we've talked about it before. One of our biggest episodes was 
we stayed awake and did a a recording at like one o'clock in the morning after the arguably the most electric verses of all time. I'll say um, not necessarily the biggest, but among the biggest was the Locks versus Dipset. Uh, it was held in the Madison Square Garden Theater, so not the major arena. And Jadakiss in particular, all the locks, they, they came super prepared. They rapped all of their songs. They were not rapping over records. They came throwing elbows uh, verbally. It seemed the tension was in the air. It seemed like it could spiral out of control the way it actually did for 3-6 Mafia and Bone, um, thugs. And, and Bone thugs. But it didn't. And th- these guys ended up going on tour afterwards. And I think that it was after this one that Fat Joe coined the phrase yesterday's price is not today's (laughs) price word and it turns out that's quite literal but we'll talk about that but this week jim jones called for a locks versus dipset rematch and just uh the other day jadica said he was down for it and swiss beats has been uh been sending out social media posts also uh you know asking like who's ready for that part too but you know, it sounds like it sounds like it could happen. Um, they wanted to be in Madison Square Garden proper, so the big, the big one. Uh, you know, eighteen, twenty thousand people. But what do you think about this? You know, I think it behooves the artists. Um, you know, I guess it's sort of like you allowing me that bowling rematch. I, uh, it's a good look. It's a good look for Jada because you know here this would be you know presumably two to three years later. Um, Because that was 2021. Yeah, it was August of 21, I believe. Um, It's a good look, but, you know, for me, I don't know that it'll ever pack the luster of the original one. And I cannot imagine that this one um, could have that. Why do you say that? I mean, really, I think, you know, you and I spoke about it in that episode, first of all, but like Versus was this, you know, somewhat competitive some some level of pageantry you know you think of babyface and teddy riley and like clearly there's some real rivalry going on but i think it was a lot of it was just in the name of 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 love and music and the locks came so strategically and so rehearsed and so in in sync that they used that moment to truly level up their legacy i mean we ran a headline of you know that being Jada Kisses, it wasn't coming out party, but it was it was Jada Kiss like a career defining moment. That was our headline, and I stand by that. And I think that Jada came out of it, convincing everyone why he is a top five to so many fans out there. Um, and I don't know that you can redo that, and I don't know that a rematch is going to do it. But if you look at whether you want to talk about Rocky Balboa or you want to talk about you know. Um, you know, great real life boxers, Muhammad Ali, the rematch is a thing. So maybe I stand corrected, but a 2023 or 2024 match, and it's probably 23 if it happens, it's just a different time. I mean, a versus feels different in this world that we're living in now than it did even in 2021. And I just don't know how that'll compare one to the next. I'm not against them doing it, but I just don't know if it will change perceptions and outcomes but you might differ than me yeah you know jadakus stands behind that statement we made too right and that he actually that the locks price and his price actually truly went up after that 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 performance uh their the fee that they get for performing in shows 
So that's, that's huge um, and discernible. And the second thing is he actually renegotiated his Def Jam contract too. So like there was true like impact from that performance and it shows you how one moment can truly like kind of change the traje trajectory of your career. Uh, I also think it did that for Fat Joe too because his commentary the next day, he spoke by himself for an hour and it was gripping. Like yeah. it was absolutely amazing. Just what a, an amazing storyteller he is, uh, how how adept he is at, at talking ish. You know, was he was super greasy and that was dope. But in terms of a rematch, I agree rematches are a part of, the, of of competitive sports. And um if the first battle was good and close, uh are typically as gripping, if not even more so. For me, the challenge is the versus format, you know, and it's twofold. So one. You've made this point a lot, and we've seen it. Like I think it's been like almost a year since we had a versus, right? So the, the feels question, like it. The question is, like, has the format run its course, or is it still viable within this day and age of being out? You know, it, it took shape when we were all kind of locked down and um, and were searching for entertainment, and it was a great, great vehicle for that. And it did transition into the live space, which we saw with that one, uh, I think pretty well. But, you know, there's been a lot of kind of like business complications that have like taken the momentum away. And it's, it's often hard to like have something like that come back and regain the steam. The second, though, is the format, which is people are meant to bring their best 20 songs, right? You, you come there. Uh, you play your best 20 songs. For a lot of people, it's a struggle to have 20 songs. There's some artists I won't name who are playing live versions of their songs and, you know, um, of songs they played earlier. And not many artists um, have 20 bona fide, like, hits or classics. Um, and so to say to them, look, you're going to have to do 20 more, I think is a really difficult proposition. And if you just rehash some of the older ones, that doesn't feel, to your point, as fresh as before either. So I, th I think it's a real challenge. Yeah, I mean, and that's what, A, made the locks such, in my opinion, an underdog. I mean, Dipset had so many fans, but the locks came in and they did mixtape joints uh, really, really well. And, and you know, you mentioned uh, Jada redoing his Def Jam contract. Some of those mixtape tracks were then formally released on the Spotify. Uh, it was the... It's not the showbiz and AGB, but it's uh, I, I it'll come to me. But like, oh, the one uh, on the Khaled on Khaled's uh, DJ Khaled, his Jadakiss um, one kicks off with that. that yeah, word. I mean, he does so. the bit from from uh, the Ja Rule Fat Joe song, but no, it was uh, it was it just hit me. It was um, who shot you? Right, I think it was it was to that instrumental. Jada had a mixtape verse that they now formally released, and that was one of the songs that he did in the verses that you know, the crowd went crazy for. And I love that because that's not a, that that's a street hit, but that's not a song that charts. That's not a song that might necessarily resonate with the mainstream, but the way that they performed it, they made it a moment and they used it strategically. And let's not forget either. I believe that uh, Jada Kiss as a soloist did a versus against Fab, which was in, in fun. I mean, they had put out an album together and that was early on. I think that was 2020. Um, so you're going to come back for a third time my question is, is if for some reason, um, you know, Dipset has the bigger reaction or the social media's takeaway is Dipset ones, what does that really change things? Because one thing I'll say to Jim Jones and, and Cam and, you know, I, I've never heard anyone say that they didn't lose. 
but I don't think that they lost in any way coming out of that. I don't think anyone thought less of Dipset as a brand, as an entity, um, or its original members out of that night. They just maybe thought that the locks are better live performers. Um, and even down to that, like right now, Cam and Mace have a sports show. I texted you a clip from yesterday that is amazing. Like Cam continues to level up. And I think, you know, Jim does what Jim does. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think it could be cool. And maybe Versus as a brand needs this right now. They need a callback of some kind into the glory days of Versus to get people amidst everything else that's going on to block off their calendar and pay attention. But in terms of the storyline of of the locks and D block versus Dipset, I don't think it's going to change. Yeah, I don't either. One of the things that um, Jim Jones said is that Dipset didn't, didn't prepare, that the locks definitely came in prepared and you could see it and the Dipset would prepare this time. But I don't know that it would change things, right? I think that um, if, they, if they'd come in equally prepared, I think it was beyond just, um, you know, beyond just the way they rap, but wrapping their words not over tracks and things like that. I think, like you said, the strategy that the lots employed was greater than that of, of Dipset at the time. And I don't know. I don't, I don't know that, uh, I don't know that they're going to out-strategize Jada on this, but well, you know, let me ask you about this, yeah. about Versus in general. So you infamously said that you thought Versus was over after the DJ premiere RZA one, which I think was four or five in. It had a longer shelf life than that. Uh, so, but what about now? You think Versus is still viable? I think it is, but they have to they have to tool with it a little bit. They have to find a way, in my opinion, to possibly integrate fan voting. You know, like make it more interactive. I think it's really cool that there's discourse going on, whether in in IG Live or on Triller or just alongside on Twitter. But I think they have to find a way because the audience quite obviously isn't captive anymore. Um, but I think the concept of this or that, you know, as old as the age of time and, and Versus did a really good job of it. And Swizz and Timberland, I know you make it seem like I'm a hater with that with that quote. And I'll own those words. I will. Um, and I was 100 percent wrong because that was March of 2020. And from Big Daddy Kane to KRS to Locks and Dipset, there were so many good ones after that. Um, but they need to find a way to take a step with the times. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. Like if they could have real-time fan voting and show that as a graphic, I think that would be super dope. I'm going to reach out to Steve. Uh, Steve Pammon is um, uh, a friend and also is running Versus now uh, for Swizz and Tim. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to float that out to him. So can, you do, can you edit out the part that you said where I dissed him? <laughs> for sure for sure i'm not going to the clip i'll just send right. the text so. right. that's what's up man right. um so so what else moved you this week in hip-hop well uh i think you should lead the next story man because you're the one who um reported on this for the site you brought my attention to my attention first pretty pretty tough story uh, especially given that it it relates to a person who played a very significant role in my earliest experiences of hip hop. Sure. Um, but you want to kick this off? This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your team, Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello. 
I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, um, 2016, um, there was information that emerged. And, and one person who's not in the notes that you and I share that I believe is is the reason why this truth has come to the light is is star Troy Terrain from Star and Buck Wild and later everyday not everyday struggle but um yeah everyday on 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 complex yeah everyday but, struggle yeah yeah star for years I mean I was an avid Star and Buck listener you know always said that one of hip hop's pioneers you know really had some proverbial skeletons in the closet and it became known right around this time seven years ago in the spring of 2016 an accuser uh ronald savage stepped forward and said that when he was underage africa bambata who is you know a hip-hop artist um you know africa bambata in the soul sonic force and you know creator of planet rock and looking for a perfect beat and host of other breakthrough you know records for the genre as well as the founder of the universal zulu nation um, Ronald Savage said that he had molested him. Um, and in the days that followed over the next year, uh, several additional accusers, both attaching their names and remaining anonymous, did the same. Um, at a young age, like like young teens, like uh, yeah, adolescence. Yeah, you know, um, and that you know this this the the accusations allege that members of the Universal Zulu Nation in the leadership position at that time were aware and did nothing um you know the accusations also said that through the journey of hip-hop you know bambata gained access to these underage boys you know just like you know because this has very much been about you know mentorship and and belonging to a you know hip-hop culture that you know he was around young people he was a mentor i believe i believe in his early days in the 1970s he was something of a youth advocate you know in the bronx um so this story this story caught a lot of attention at the time um and and while Africa Bambata has never been um formally charged nor arrested um he definitely has been removed from the spotlight and you know here we are right now in the 50th anniversary of hip-hop and and in those seven years um you know Grandmaster Flash at one point who was another godfather pioneer of this culture stepped forth and said to cool herc there were three of us and you know in the 1990s there was a source magazine cover of these three guys as as hip-hop's founders cool herc grandmaster flash africa bambata and so bambata is kind of out of the public light in the wake of this you know these accusations and uh, potential you know fall from grace and you know now we are in the thick of the 50th anniversary and um one thing i should add is after those accusations, the Universal Zulu Nation stepped forth and said and severed ties, at least in a statement, with Africa Bambata. Now that gets complicated because there was a leaked call 
and this was published in a, this week in an um, article at Rolling Stone, where Africa Bimbada said otherwise. He made you know a comparison that the Zulu nation was him. How could it be without? But the reason you and I are talking about this on this podcast is there's an organization called Hip Hop Stands with Survivors. It's an advocacy group um, that that is started by a journalist Leela Willis, um, who's a co-founder of it, and she's organized a demonstration. Um, it's the that- survivors of. Of, of of sexual abuse in in this case um yeah, yeah I, I was saying the name yeah, of it yeah but you're absolutely right yeah i mean yeah. on behalf of the survivors of you know um africa bambata's alleged abuse they're coming forth and and asking the executive director of the universal hip-hop museum rocky bucano to step down um and the reason they're asking for this is they are alleging that you know, uh, Rocky has ties to the Universal Zulu Nation. Um, and I'll read this. Um, in the, According to Rolling Stone, the quote from Miss Willis is, we want Rocky Bucano to step down because if they got a responsible person in there, then the Zulu Nation affiliation would go away automatically. This is what she said to Rolling Stone. We are going to stay on the elected officials to stop our public dollars from funding that museum, from the mayor of the Bronx borough to the president of state legislatures and Congress. They are re-traumatizing survivors all the time with all that Zulu stuff. Um, and so have you have you visited the Universal Hip Hop Museum? It's not open yet. This is the one that um this is the one that is being constructed right now. Right. And, but there's uh, been some private events there. I just didn't know if you had been there. I've been to I don't think to that I've been to some other hip hop okay. museums like in the Bronx, but this one I think is still being constructed. I think got you. Uh, I think it might open this summer, or that's the goal. Um, I know that Mass Appeal has been involved in it and quite a few others, but yeah, and it's yeah, got we, a lot of funding from the city, which is you know part of what the, the protest is here. Right, and in the headline, Miss um, Willis, you know, is is really, from what I understand, putting pressure on New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who, you know, uh, has definitely um, represented his uh being a part of the hip-hop generation and being you know a fan of the culture and has endorsed some of these i think contributions going to the museum um, he calls himself the first hip-hop mayor um which is a complicated assertion and i i would encourage um anyone listening to this to check out our afh family uh the company man justin hunt because he did a deep dive about eric adams and this very topic uh, a couple of weeks ago which I think is really, really good and really lays out like kind of some of the conflicting things that may have happened um, that call into question that title of a uh, hip hop mayor, but go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And and I was connected to um, Eric Adams years ago through a hip hop uh, legend that I'll keep nameless in this sake, but I, I've spoken, I've spoken to him and, and I know he's many things and I would urge anyone to check out Justin's piece, but I know his relationship to hip hop as it reflects on his policies um you know is questionable but i i saw this and i'm i'm really i'm really uh well first of all is there anything just from a fact standpoint that we should we should add to the conversation right now no just again like just um reiterating that the hip-hop stands with survivors advocacy group wants eric adams to cut funding for the universal hip-hop museum uh the the museum has received funding from the state of new york I think uh, $7 million or something like that. And they've received additional funding from the city of New York. 
And uh, I think we got, uh, yeah, I think we got to lay out the connection between Rocky Buchano and Africa Bambata and the Zulu Nation and, and why why they're calling for him to step down. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, I receive emails from Rocky Buchano. We've spoken over email. I learned a lot about his story through an interview he did years ago with our friend Sean Sotero and his Cypher podcast. And Rocky Buchano, which was news to me, co-founded Strong City Records, which I don't know if you remember Strong City, but, you know, they put out um you know records by busy b and you know some of diamond d's stuff with ultimate force they were a bronx-based label and it was co-founded by rocky and jazzy J. and if you know the history of africa bambata you know he was referred to in history as the master of records somebody who knew a lot about different music and when you look at you know planet rock having craft work elements and you know all these different genres that was that was bam's gift but when it came time to sometimes cutting and scratching and really rocking the party it was jazzy J, who i consider you know a hip-hop hero um that's just me talking and jazzy J went on to you know co-produce it's yours for tila rock and has definitely done a lot of things mentored a lot of digging in the crates so they had this label and then beat street yeah. yeah yeah absolutely and you know was was instrumental to the early days of def jam and this group is is really questioning um, Rocky Buchanan's ties to the Universal Zulu Nation. And in the Rolling Stone report, Rocky denies that he has any ties to UZN. Um, one of the things in the early days uh, when the Universal Hip Hop Museum was was raising money and trying to build awareness, um, you know, one of the people on its board was Cutman LG, who is part of the Universal Zulu Nation and had a radio show at the time with Africa Bambata. So while Rocky is saying, I'm not involved, there's ties within this organization, at least historically, that are adjacent. And, and that's where it can get, I think, a little bit murky. Um, you know, I, at a recent, um, at a recent press conference too, you know, Mr. Buchanan shouted out the Universal Zulu Nation, which to me, I'll, I'll just editorialize this much, like that is, a key part of hip hop's history you know that was an that was a movement in the 1970s to take people off the street and kind of empower them through the tools of hip hop you know rap and break and dj graffiti you know peace love and understanding all of that um you know throughout this all rocky bucano said that you know he and i'm paraphrasing but you know sympathizes with the accusers he's taken that stand for me just having read the the rolling stone article um, I am, I'm very sensitive in, you know, totally to, you know, um, the damage done by, by sexual abuse. And when we were reporting on this story a lot in 2016, you and I spent a lot of hours just making sure the words in our reports were, were really accurate that they, we were using, um, reportedly and allegedly, and, and just really laying out true journalistic integrity I look at this museum and we are in a forefront of hip hop having um, its its first museum of this kind. And, you know, I can't speak on Rocky Buchanan's character, um, but for me, everything that I've read up until this point, I personally have not seen um, a strong association with Africa Bambata. So to read this, I kind of question why now, why in the midst of it all? And that's not to you know, um, mute, silence, take away from any of the accusers. It's just, it's one thing to, you know, 
make sure that Africa Bambata and those that follow him are aware of these accusations, but it's quite the other to, to, to take it out on a museum, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's different. a different thing to take it out on the museum versus to address a person who might be still connected to someone who has potentially done harm to people, you know, mm -hmm. using all the allegedly's and, and all those other things. You know, I, I separate Rocky Buchanan from the museum. He's the executive director currently, for sure. I don't know what his ties are to Africa Bambata, if they remain. Um I do think that, uh, you know, I, I didn't know that Ronald Savage worked at Charlie. the record label that where, uh, you know, he was the, one of uh, BAM's first accusers um, that Rocky Buchano had co-founded with Jazzy J. I didn't know that. That's a really yeah. deep connection when you think about the fact that, like, uh, if this uh, stuff occurred, it probably occurred around that time. Um, you know, I think that it's a very complex situation. And he obviously did have strong ties with Africa Bambata at some point, uh, Rocky Buchanan, that is. And so um, it's difficult to extricate yourself from that past, even if you didn't have any awareness of what was going on. Um, so I can see why someone would think that if he was still shouting out the Zulu Nation, which is so closely affiliated with Africa Bambata, as Bam himself said, that it might indicate that he's still supporting Africa Bambata. So, you know, I, I get the concern from people, you know, um, I don't think it's taking it out on the museum because I don't okay. think anyone is saying take, take funding. I don't think anyone is saying shut down a museum. I think they're saying there's, there's a person who's connected to it who shouldn't be connected to it. And, I, and I don't find on that. Um, aren't they, you know, don't you interpret to say that they're saying don't fund it if this person is involved? That's what I'm saying. Okay, but it's that's focused on the person, not the, yeah. not the museum. You know, yeah, okay, it is using the the museum as leverage potentially. I think that um, I I just want to step back and talk about the the bigger issue, which is how do we address um, history when it is um, filled with good and bad things, right? Um, I think that a lot in the last few years, there's been a tendency to want to just wipe out all the existence of things and it's, it's coming from all sides you know certain sides um want to take uh you know i, I just heard that, that that florida had removed uh rosa parks's skin color from um history lessons talking about um you know what she did in terms of the the, the boycotts which obviously completely eviscerates the whole point of of that story you know that she was a black woman who was uh forced to move to the back which i think is 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 uh is is crazy um by the same token uh i think that there are often uh phenomenal cultural contributions that people have uh, that people who may have very deeply disturbing personal um attributes about them have made right and I'm not saying that that applies to Africa Bambata. He has not been tried yet. It might, it might not. Um, the question remains, how do you then address their cultural contribution? You know, and the way I think about it is, you know, so I went to the African-American History Museum in, in D.C. And have, have you been to that? Mm -hmm. So I went to that and uh, it is one of the most powerful and profound experiences I've had, particularly at a museum. But it starts and you're walking up um, like a, a circle all the way up to the top and you start with slavery 
and it is brutal. It is a very, very, um, you know, heart-wrenching depiction of slavery. And it makes no bones about the fact that um, it was based on capitalism. Uh, you know, we, we learn a lot about the morality and everything, but there's the, the money part gets taken out. And obviously the, the implication is that that, that gave America a huge advantage over other countries because there was a free labor system. And those people who put in that labor were never compensated for that, right? And so uh, rather than try and um, whitewash it, for lack of a better term, they like get into it and talk about its full ugliness, right? Uh, but, you know, don't deny it. Um, I don't know what that means in terms of this. I don't know if you include Africa Mbata with an asterisk and talk about the the allegations that have been made, Um I don't know, man. Like, do we do we not like um, talk about Bill Cosby anymore because of the things that he's been convicted of? You know, there are lots of people that we um, hold very high in this culture. Tupac is a convicted sex offender. You know, um, there are. It's a really difficult thing, um, and I think that when we get into um, taking out all contributions we leave ourselves in a pretty dangerous place yeah i mean and 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 this is tricky and for me i um i listened to before this story broke recently i listened to some records from the soul sonic force i mean one of the one of the members of the soul sonic force is currently in a commercial with ice t for car shield and i thought i was like wow if that didn't happen you know, this person's cultural contributions, like, like, where can you go without a figurehead with a disgraced figurehead that's not in the not in, not in the site. And, you know, I look at it, and I, I don't think you can take away the music. I don't think you can take away the history. Um, you know, I look at rock and roll and Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, married a underage cousin, if I'm not mistaken, like they made that movie yeah. about it in the 80s. And, you know, Dave Chappelle right. did young teens. Young yeah. teens, yeah. And Dave Chappelle did his thing on Chuck Berry, you know, and, and those two guys, you know, are some of the earliest, if not founders of, of rock and roll as we know it, you know, and we still like, I still hear Run Run Rudolph every holiday season. And, you know, the music, you still hear Johnny Be Good. The other day I was hearing it as I walked out of a grocery store. And I feel like it's the same, but you, you can't, you can't erase it. But it's this year I was very curious, um, you know, how documentaries and how the story of hip hop would be told as it pertains to somebody who, while not convicted, has had numerous people come forward and say this. And it, it does. It's just a bigger question. And you and I have talked about this on the site and on the podcast as it pertains to R. Kelly and Michael Jackson and I think Takashi 69 just a, a, a range of figures. But to me you know, you make a good point about the Cosby show of like, yeah, Bill Cosby has been accused and convicted of heinous things, but the show is the show. And while most networks might not want to touch it, some do. And I think there were merits to the show that you don't, can't take away just because one of its members or uh, one of its, its creator, its actor did these other things. It's just a real conundrum. Yeah. I think where I fall is you separate the person from, um, from the problem or from the behavior and uh or from the art i should say you separate the person from the, the art and so i think there's a way to talk about a person's artistic contributions to something without 
in any way suggest, you know, talking about their character or um, what they've done, which, you know, so I think there's two ways, right? Either one, you go whole hog and like do what I was saying earlier. Uh, I think that gets difficult though, because so much of this stuff, like what has happened with African Mbada has not been proven uh, in a court of law yet. And so, um, and this is not to take away from anyone who might be a potential victim, it hasn't been proven or established without a reasonable doubt at this point, you know, so it's difficult to address something like that. So the other way direction is to just talk about that person's musical contributions, not talk about their character, what they've done for society or anything like that, and just leave it at that, Um, you know, because otherwise you, you have a very fragmented and censored version of history that I don't think is, is accurate either. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, you made a really good point that I neglected of um, Ronald Savage's ties to Strong City and and obviously that being a company that Rocky Buchanan started with Jazzy J. And I've been a lifelong resident of Pennsylvania and I can remember it was about 12, 13 years ago. No, excuse me, 10, 11 years ago. You know, Joe Paterno was one of the most beloved, you know, football, college football coaches. And then when they discovered that he had known awareness of Jerry Sandusky, Joe Paterno you know, spent the last chapter of his life no longer coaching and removed from the university. So it is, and that was, that predates, you know, Me Too, that predates a lot of social um, movements and progress that we've seen in the last decade. So I'll be curious how this one There was talk then too, at that time, if I remember correctly, about stripping Penn State of the national championships that it won under his tenure. But ultimately they decided against that, which, which I think is the right thing, right? I agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'll be curious how this one shakes out. One thing that I do know from just listening to the conversations that I've heard is, is you know, Rocky has dedicated himself very much to get this music, to get this museum, excuse me, um, you know, to break ground. And, and to your point, they've had some huge figures from around the hip hop community that have become, you know, sponsors and partners. And, you know, I definitely want to see a place and it, I do believe it should be in New York where we can begin to kind of store this culture's trophy, so to speak. Absolutely. I don't think there's any stop in the museum. I think that's going to happen no matter what. I think it's very much in motion, but it's complicated, man. And, um, you know, history is never uh, clean cut. So, True. Uh, but, you know, I hope that there's, uh, you know, healing um, that's happening for those people who have been affected and, um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll stay on top of this one. Absolutely. We will. So another story came out this week, um, DJ academics, who is also not one who's a, a, a stranger to controversy called out Drake, Kendrick Lamar and Jay Cole and others for no longer supporting hip hop media outlets who helped promote them early in their careers. This one is obviously very interesting uh, to to us. You know, um, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've experienced it. I've experienced it in the past too. But he said, and I'm gonna quote him. He said, "Yo, J Cole and the rest of all y'all big rappers. No wonder y'all get asked uh, on by hip hop outlets, man. Y'all get so big in the game. They use the culture and they use all these blogs. I'm not saying you need to to like be like I don't care if they don't do an interview with me." But I I know a lot of journalists in the game and they won't speak up. And a lot of them still really hope to get an interview. I say, F all them. And then he said, I made it on my own. And he said, I just look at, you know, dudes like Cole, 
when I see you doing some stuff on ESPN, but you won't do an interview with a, a, a brother in the culture, you won't hop on million dollars worth of game. You won't hop on drink champs. You won't be with Joe Budden or something like that. I look at it as some weird S right. And so it's really interesting because we literally just reported on Cole's interview last week. Mm-hmm. He talked about the fact that it wasn't with um, an established media outlet. Um, and uh, we talked about why that was, but I want to kind of like get back into it into the context of this. But first, I want to read a couple more things that I said. He said his rationale, his his assumption is that people don't do these interviews because he said most of these brothers don't want to be asked real questions. That's the main thing. Once you get to a certain level, you get to control the narrative. And then he said, if Kendrick don't want to F with you, tell him to kick rocks. I want I don't want to beg someone to give me no interview. That's how all these outlets act. No, no, we can't be too mean to them because when their album comes out, we're going to get like, no, meaning that, you know, outlets are, you know, uh, using kid gloves because they're afraid that they're not going to then get access. But his point is you're not going to get access anyway. And then he said, they're going to go to some whitewash outlet and go sit with some random dude or some random white dude and not talk to you. So, um, it's really, really interesting. Um, I both agree and disagree with academics simultaneously here, you know, so I'll break down both. I agree with him that artists, when they get to a certain stature, um, no longer support or uh, come back and speak with the outlets who built them up. I think that is a fact across the board. I wouldn't limit it to race because I I see it in like uh, other genres too. Um, I think it's more sensitive here because most of the biggest media outlets are not controlled by Blacks who are the predominant part of rap culture, and it becomes kind of a cast 2022. So you get big and you want to get on the Rolling Stones and the MTVs and the other kind of big mainstream platforms. That's your goal. But on the flip side, if you were to continue to support the Two Dope Boys, the Nile Rights, the um, Ambrosia for Heads to whoever it might be, then those outlets uh, would eventually become on the same scale as those. And so I, I can see academics point in that regard. The flip side where I disagree is that he's saying that um, this is about hip hop versus mainstream media. I think for Drake, Cole and Kendrick in particular, it's about it is about controlling their own narrative, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing because what happens is people go on interviews and not even the fans, but typically the media outlets themselves will pick one controversial part of that interview and flip that out of context in order to get headlines, you know, for clicks. Um, and so artists have seen that time and time again and just don't want to be a part of that. So they'd rather get their message out directly to fans. The fan, once you get it out there to fans in any kind of digital format, people are going to do what they want with it anyway. But at least they've had the opportunity to control their narrative and put it out there. And I don't even see controlling your narrative as ducking. I see it as truly wanting to have your story told in full, proper context. And it is what it is. And I would say that we, you know, especially, and, you know, we, we have checks and balances, you and I, like, try and keep each other honest on this. 
try to even when it's something that we've cut, like keep it within its proper context and and make sure that we're reflecting the artist's true intentions rather than you know doing something that is really just a wild like assertion that doesn't really right. connect to what they said in order to get clicks, which we see more and more of, unfortunately, at a lot of outlets. But what's your reaction to this generally and, and to what I just said? I agree with it. I, I think it's funny coming from academics, and this isn't to like kick at him, but he has been a media personality that has been very um, unfiltered in terms of his criticism of artists. And I feel like that that has made for academics having one of the stronger platforms in the greater rap space. I wouldn't necessarily say hip hop, but in rap, I mean, he has been able to speak his mind and has a following because of it. Um, but I look, I mean, you make a really good point in a roundabout way. And I think about it like, you know, I will, I, I, I the Tudo boys shake and Mecca. I worked with them for a number of years when we, when all three of us were involved at hip hop DX. I mean, we're talking 2007 2009 you know and i watched what they did with two dope boys and that site was very instrumental to my discovery of kendrick lamar and you know at that time you know in the early 2010s you know kendrick's now at a major label his press exposure is getting less and less and less you know and i don't know that he can give a blog that helped make an early wave of fans aware of him an exclusive be it a song an interview or whatever but at one point, I think of this, it was, you know, 2019, 2018, somewhere in there, two dope boys put up a post that said, oh, we're thinking of hanging it up. Like, you know, not rights, not around anymore. This isn't what it used to be. We're thinking of leaving it behind. And I don't know if you remember this, Reggie, but like Kendrick Lamar went on Twitter and said, please don't do it. You mean so like he affirmed their contributions to the culture. And I thought that was incredibly, um, you know, real of Kendrick to recognize what one publication had meant to him and to show them love and to get all these other people to come in and go, no, don't. And Tudor boys are still publishing as we speak. And on the interview front, I think that there is a frustration as somebody who's been doing this for 20 years. You know, I was one of the first people to interview Wiz Khalifa. We're both from Pittsburgh. I, I put him, not put him, but I, I covered him. I decided to cover him and I greenlit a story that I did in 2004, 2005, at all hip hop, Wiz Khalifa has gone on to become a multi platinum. He might even have a diamond certified single. When Wiz does press, he doesn't seek out Jake Payne. I'm over that. Like, I don't sit around and cry about it, but I wish we lived in a system where that early chance that you take on somebody still matters. But I will tell you that, like, there's artists out there, you know, Drake and Eminem come to mind and their relationship with somebody like, you know, Elliot Wilson, that holds up. Like, there's a reason why artists will do a Rap Radar podcast interview. Drake has done it and maybe not do any other press. Like, you remember the gatekeepers that opened the door for you. And, you know, I know how much you have done for so many artists we talk about on this platform. And I wish that for what we've been a part of together for a decade and what you've been doing for 13 years, I wish that that would manifest itself differently but I do know the love is there. And you've told me that too, when you run into some of those figures. Um, so I think Axe Point somewhat holds water, but it's also just the nature of the beast. Um, and I said it last week, as it pertains to J. Cole and it's Bobby Myers, right? The GM of the Warriors? Bob Myers, yeah. Bob, yeah, Bob Myers. Like, he didn't ask him any gotcha journalism questions. You know, it was more so, tell me your story. Talk to me about your process. Let me know your frame of mind. 
I love DJ EFN. Like, he's a good dude to me. And I'm a fan of Noriega. He's been a good dude to me. If J. Cole sits down on Drink Champs, it's going to be a very different conversation. And it might get way more views. It might be the conversation that millions more people want to tune into, but it's a different kind of conversation. And if you're J. Cole, you might not want to have that type of conversation. You might want to have this other type of thing. The last point that I'll make, though, is I don't know how much um, race is a part of it. You know, Joe Budden used to make the point that he was frustrated when artists would speak to Zane Lowe, you know, for, uh, you know, Apple Music. And Zane, uh, you know, not being not being a, a black person, you know, would watch would have these artists on his show. But I look and I look at Bomani Jones and there's a lot like Little Wayne will go to Bomani Jones. But Little Wayne, I feel like would rather do an interview where he gets to talk about sports than and maybe do a little bit of talking about hip hop than he would just doing a straight hip hop interview. And that being said, Little Wayne did drink champ. So I don't know. I, I think there's some 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 truth there but i think it's kind of a misguided point um in in other ways yeah i think it's i think it's person by person too right and i think it's also timing you know drake's last big interview that i can recall was with rap radar you know uh jay-z has done rap radar will smith has done rap radar um diddy has done drink champs kanye did drink champs multiple times very infamously you know like the biggest stars in the world have done a lot of stuff for hip hop outlets recently and hip hop outlets are becoming a, a lot of the, the biggest platforms of choice for people, you know, so button is one um, drink champs is another breakfast club is another, um, you know, sway still gets a lot of folks, you know, um, I think part of it is timing and what a person is trying to accomplish uh, and, you know, a lot of times these guys, I, there hasn't been much selectivity that I've seen recently with Cole, Kendrick and Drake, the ones that he named specifically. Kendrick did no press virtually. He did one virtual Vulture article. Um, and I think he said that was with a, a, a relate. No, that was Cole. Uh, he did one Vulture article and that was strategically timed, you know, ahead of award season um, in, a, in a mainstream publication. And it was print. It was not yeah. um, not video. Cole, this is, as we said before, this is his first interview in a few years, and it was a different format. It, w- it was really about uh, a series uh, that, that that Bob Myers has about how people attain success, and so it was with a very specific framework. And Drake hasn't done anything in, in like almost three years, so he'll give yeah. Semtex some love, and, and I imagine that DJ Semtex was somebody that probably took a chance on Drake at some point in his career or showed extra bit of love. It's it's funny, like I one of the things I've done on the side is press bios. You heard me mention that about Nipsey. And what's funny is one of the things I'll tell an artist is I'm recording this conversation. No one will hear it besides us. And you control the narrative. I say that every time I do it to the artist. And there's artists that I will speak to that'll say, I will not do an interview. But if it comes time to my bio that's going to appear on Spotify or their website or Apple Music, I will talk to you. I will offer input. But there's just a really big distrust in the media for the reasons that we talked about. And I do think for as salacious as drink champs can be, it's kind of a badge of honor now, similar to Howard Stern in the nineties, or, you know, it's something to do. Like I survived drink champs. I survived the curious questions, the things that everyone wanted to know. And an artist like Diddy or like Kanye or like little Wayne might find that fun. And also, you know, they know that Nori and EFN are, are, are musical peers. Those are guys who make music who have been in the industry. There's probably an understanding of what's too far 
But when it's just somebody that's a journalist um, or somebody that's trying to be a journalist that knows that they can make the bottom line shift by getting a really salacious quote or or creating, um, you know, a, a hot button moment, that's it's too much liability for an artist, especially of, of the Kendrick Cole uh, Drake stature. Yeah, Drake. Uh... Drink Champs is like a hot ones, right? Yep. It's, it's a specific format. You go there for a purpose. When you're ready to get loose, you go to Drink Champs. Um, you know, if you notice too, I don't see Drink Champs, uh, Budden, or even the Breakfast Club making salacious headlines. They just put it up and then other people go in and, and cut it up the way that they yeah. want to. They they typically say X is on Drink Champs or whatever. And sometimes Drink Champs, as far as they'll go, is release a clip. Clip. It's a clip that's controversial, um, but it's still a person, you know, using their own words and you can see it and then you can get the full context afterwards. You know, I will say, though, just stepping back, um, it has definitely been the case that, uh, you know, over the years, especially for black artists, they've often started with black lawyers, black accountants, um, you know, black media and so forth. And they reach a certain stature where they're labeled not even as R&B or rap anymore, but as pop. And often that comes with switching over to lawyers, accountants, other like support structure that is not, um, that is not black. Um, that's a, that's a traditional thing that's happening. So I can understand that point, but by the same token, there's also been a change. You know, you see people like LeBron who has a team surrounding him of, of strong black executives. Jay-Z. Rich Paul, you know, and so forth, Jay-Z and so forth. So even that is changing. So I don't think we can make blanket statements anymore. You know, I think that uh, all this stuff is nuanced. You got to look at all the different circumstances that might apply with respect to each artist and understand that individuals are acting differently. There's plenty of people that you and I can call for an interview at any time who are um, legends in the game, legends to our audience. And so like, um, you know, and also I, I feel confident as you suggested that any person I've worked with in the past, if I run into, it's all good. And, um, you know, interview is one thing, uh, a very significant favor uh, that might be um, more impactful is another. And I think that I have a better chance at those a lot of times in the interviews. So, so we'll see. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's very well said. And to me, an interview isn't always, you know, that's not always the end game. You and I have had interviews that we thought would change our fortunes. And I think over time, we've realized that's not always the case. And we can offer more support to an artist um, in other ways besides just taking an hour and, and all the hours of prep that goes into it. So it's it's big picture stuff, you know. For sure. For sure. All right. Well, um, let, let's 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 move to the next thing. Um, I want to talk about we're going to talk about music in a minute. So. Uh, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Me and, and we just talked about Jay-Z a second ago, and um, Jay-Z was in the news this week because Damson Idris, who is, if folks don't know, the the star of Snowfall, he plays Franklin Saint 
uh, British actor, um, the it guy right now. You know, he was trying to get his green card and it turned out that Jay-Z played a very significant role in helping him to get his green card. You never heard this. Um, you know, Jay is public about a few things, like when he uh, worked to get hundreds of fathers out of jail uh, for Father's Day and his work to like reform criminal justice in terms of like bail and things like that. He's vocal. But I've heard this so many times that behind the scenes, he is pulling strings and helping people out um, in ways that no one will ever know and is super humble about it. It's ironic to me because there's so much hate directed at Jay-Z. And, you know, I think, you know, especially when stuff like the NFL happens, he doesn't get any any leeway, you know, and he even says, you know, as you would say, shoot me some bail on this. Um, but, you know, he actually is doing so much more than people realize. Like, uh, why do you, one, why do you think there's so much hate directed to him about this kind of stuff? And two, uh, why do you think he stays silent on so much of it? I mean, I, I'll answer the second one first. I just, I think that's great character. You know, um, I am fascinated in the times that we live in the amount of times people even give a compliment like, yo, Reggie, I think your shoes are dope. I have the same pair. Like, like there are so many people that even find ways to push themselves into compliments. And Jay, who, you know, I have to say, like, it, may, it might sound corny, but like, you know, there's a lot of, of characteristics in terms of moving with honor as a man that I've learned from artists. And Jay is certainly somebody that, just I think has role modeled what class is to me, you know, a lot of times in my life. And I think you can do things behind the scenes and not have to tell the world. And that being a great example, as far as the hate, I think there will always be a level of nonconformity. And I think there's a level of, you know, Jay has positioned himself um, kind of hard to get these days. You know, like we see him coming late to the Grammys. You see, you know, how he moves, he is a man of respect. And I think that that distance from him and the common folk can cause folks to, you know, think that he's out of touch or resent him. Um, you know, we, we ran, we ran a piece when he did his, his Khaled verse last year that, that Justin, you know, our dear friend had just made a case of, you know, is he too removed to speak about some of these issues? And, you know, we acknowledge that as a, is a possibility that some folks may agree with, even if in the case of me, I, I didn't at that time. Um, but yeah, I think that'll always come with superstardom and power and wealth. But what about you? Yeah, I think that he moves like that for the exact same reason you did, uh, that he is, he doesn't need to, right? He, he's, he's secured himself. Uh, he's going to help a lot of people. It's not for the fame and for the publicity. It's really for the game and, yeah. and doing it for people. And so there's no need to do it. He's got plenty of publicity when he needs it. In terms of the hate, I just think that there's that it's just inevitable when you reach a certain level of success. You know, uh, going back to a lot of the artists we just talked about, the ironic thing for me is that a lot of these artists we did support as they were they were coming up, their music didn't change. It only got better um, for some, you know, some, but I don't think any of those three did kind of like strive to become more commercial and compromise their sound. Those three just continued to get better. And yet you see hate directed to them in a way that was not present when they were an underdog releasing mixtapes. 
I think there's just something about, you know, there's that saying, we love to build people up and we'd love to tear them down even more. Yep. Um, I, there's just, you know, people resent success. And I think that, that, that Jay being the most successful draws a lot of that resentment, you know, um, one of the things I've been thinking about recently, so Lamar Jackson, not to go on like too much of a tangent, is uh, in the midst of a very significant contract negotiation, probably the most significant in the NFL this year. Uh, and he's representing himself, which is interesting. Um, he threatens the power structure in a couple of ways. One, he's looking for guaranteed compensation um, in a way that only Deshaun Watson has gotten. And Deshaun Watson, if he gets it, he, uh, you know, could be considered an outlier. If, if Lamar Jackson gets that same kind of guaranteed compensation, then it could be a paradigm shift for the NFL where they have to start offering more athletes of that stature guaranteed compensation. And even though they should do that because other leagues do, and it's by far the most dangerous, they don't. And they're trying to preserve their economic uh, uh, system. The second thing is that in representing himself, He's cutting out, um, you know, he's he's cutting himself into 15% more income and also taking charge of his own destiny instead of um, having like kind of a trusted advocate. And a lot of times, even though agents are clearly working for their clients, there's a certain, certain camaraderie that comes and, you know, they know the executives and there's a push pull and like, you know, um, it's a different kind of negotiation. If he were to do this himself, he's showing he's also showing, hey, guys, you don't need this. And so there's a there's a there's a, a few kind of like factions that might be rooting against him a little bit in this this situation. I've wondered, though, given who Jay-Z is and his um, affiliation with Rock Nation and their sports management and given what we're learning about him with Damson Idris and others, I wonder if he's like been uh, pulling Lamar Jackson's coat behind the scenes and saying, yo, you know, you should do this. You should do this. Um, I don't need any money from you. I'm good. I just want to see you win. Like, uh, I really wonder, it would not surprise me if that was going down, but any thoughts on that? I mean, my only question is, you know, Jay also has a relationship with the NFL and you alluded to it a moment ago. Would that at all put him in a weird position? So on one hand, be mindful of self-empowerment, but on another, you know, the league is right there. And and if nothing else, we've seen at least rock nation having a strong hand in super bowl halftime show curation. Um, could Not one in secret. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Not if it's in secret. But, you know, to your point, thinking long-term and the hove is I'm sure a chess, chess player. Um, if he does have intent on buying a team at some point, he might not want, but you know what? Maybe he philosophically believes that athletes should have guaranteed contracts. I'm sure he argues that all the time for his, so I, I think like if if it's if it's Lamar versus the system, he's going yeah. along with the system. Well, listen, as a diehard Pittsburgh Steelers fan, I want Lamar Jackson to get paid by an NFC team. I need him up and out of the AFC North. <laughs> <laughs> I see you. I see you. Um, one other thing before we get to music that I thought was really interesting is DJ Jazzy Jeff is in the news. Um, I think it was the, the third. Is uh, what are we the thirty thirty fifth? fifth anniversary of um the first ever grammy win which was dj jazzy jeff and fresh prince uh their album he's the dj i'm the rapper um you know so in in celebration of this a phenomenal um interview done by our colleague jerry barrow over at hip-hop dx um it's jeff kind of almost doing an oral history of 
that night at Grammy 1989 when they chose to boycott the show in contrast to 35 years later uh, or 34 years later at the hip hop tribute for the 50th anniversary where he's on the stage and just the, the juxtaposition of those two experiences that Jeff had being shut out, not even televised and not going and in, in the first year when he won and being part of arguably the, the greatest rap music display ever in the Grammy history. Um, yeah. 34 years later. So he's talking about Brand New Funk, which is one of my favorite ever. DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Pinch Records. It's mine, hands down. You put it on now, it still hits. Uh, I put it on barbecue mixes all the time. And it turns out the version we've heard all these years is not even the version that he wanted. And so I'm going to read this. He said, I think the thing where I said it was bittersweet was I stayed through the entire mixing process, produced the record, mixed the record. This was the early days of 808, meaning drums. I'm putting 808s in records like Brand New Funk. This is almost like breaking a sonic rule. I got this banging and this is how I want it. I tell the engineer like, no, we want it to be prominent. We want it to hit. He's like, okay. I didn't go to the mastering session. When we sent it over to mastering, they thought we made a mistake in the mixing and had the kick drum too loud and he had took it out in the mastering. As much as I love that album, I hate hearing it because it doesn't sound like it was supposed to sound. That was the lesson that I learned that I'm going to follow this record until this comes out to make sure that nothing ever changes. That to me is crazy. That is like uh, really, really crazy. And like in reading it, my first thought is, damn, Jeff, I'm sure you got that mix. Why don't you liberate that joint? Let's let us hear it like uh, in its original form. But what did you think when you heard that? It's funny because I had a similar thought, you know, Jeff on, I think it was the second Magnificent. He redid Brand New Funk with PD Crack you know, who has just a phenomenal voice and, and the beat is very much the same. And I'm curious if the mix is closer to Jeff's envisioning, but it's, it is amazing. You know, as a guy who spent half my life in Philly, that record has always sounded especially good in the car, which I'm of the Dr. Dre kind of school and the DJ premier school of like, let's test it in the car and you got to make sure you have a car with good speakers. And that record, it's funny because I can't imagine it even better, but you know, 1987, 1988, Jeff being the technician that he is, it uh, it definitely makes me want to hear the way that he we, he wanted us to hear it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. What was cool too is is Jerry Barrow, who was my old editor at uh, my former editor at Scratch Magazine, and I, I've known Jerry a long time, and he's a great dude. But um, Jerry said that that was the first album that he bought with his own money. So to see him in this you know, 50th anniversary season coming off of the Grammys, but to be able to have a full circle moment with, you know, the magnificent Jazzy Jeff, as we talk about journalism and the state of it, what a cool piece. That's dope. That's really dope. And I run into Jerry twice in the last like two weeks. It's great being out and about again. I saw him at the De La um, party uh, celebration of their release of music on the streaming services and also tribute to Dave. And a couple weeks later, I saw him at the Little Brother concert. So, oh, dope. Yeah. yeah. So um, just quickly, Suge Knight um, is working on a biopic uh, biopic uh, series. Um, and, you know, he's, he's, he's likening it to his version of BMF and about his life. And, you know, full transparency, I once optioned a book called Have Gun Will Travel back. It was actually negotiating the option back in 2007. 
one of my dreams was to make a docu-series on Death Row Records, still thinking. And, you know, I thought that doing it from the perspective of Suge Knight and how this guy went from being Sugar Bear, you know, a revered football player and, you know, reputed mama's boy and like, you know, seemingly good dude at UNLV into one of the most feared people in the industry. And more importantly, how did he, who was so on top of the world, um, basically lead to his own demise? Um, you know, that that's the part I've always been super curious about. So a, a biopic that really got into that, I think would be phenomenal. My belief though, is that if he's in charge of it, and this would apply to anyone, not just him, it's going to be very, very, very difficult to get something that is truly objective and shows warts and all. But what are your thoughts? Same. I mean, I got very excited being a Pittsburgher when, you know, um, Suge and Anton Fuqua did that, that docu documentary for Showtime. Uh, what was it called? American Nightmare. And it was spelled yeah. night like Suge Knight. And you and I covered it. And that story continues to be an evergreen piece for us. Um, where Suge went back to the actual location, you know, where Tupac was gunned down. Um, but even that just seems super guarded. And one thing I'll say is I have not seen Suge Knight give a great interview in at least 18, well, more than that, since the mid-90s. There were a couple of pieces that he did with the LA Times and with the New York Times that I thought were super interesting. But those were print pieces that inevitably reporters spent, you know, hours and days with him to whittle down to these pieces that had location and had a lot of background. When you watch a Suge Knight interview, whether they're with Jimmy Kimmel or Wendy Williams or, you know, any of the interviews that you might find on YouTube, they've never been very good in my opinion. And um, you and I were talking recently about, you know, our dream interviews. There have been a couple of times in my career where I've literally sat around waiting for four and five hours when I've been told that Suge Knight would call me. And I always believed that I could get a good interview out of him if he was, um fully present but even then like through the phone knowing you know for years suge wouldn't do an interview over the phone you had to do it on his turf in his office um and even then i don't know and and what i fear is to sell a biopic as a cash grab at a time when you know he and his family could certainly benefit from that income um but i don't know that it would be definitive i certainly think there's legal issues in telling the story the true way and what i fear is that there's a lot of like towing the lines of I didn't do it or did I, and I don't want to watch that. And I think that's disrespectful to a lot of the people that that man's um, life intersected with. You ever see Suge Knight in person? Yeah. On, on sunset strip one time. And uh, you know, just, just quickly in passing. Um, but yeah, he he's as, as tall and as wide as they say, what about you? The same, man. I saw him um, when I was a corporate lawyer way back when my first job out of school. Uh, we represented Death Row, my firm, and wow. I was walking by a conference room and he was in there just sitting by himself. And I thought about saying something, but I saw him. And dude, I've been next to Shaq. I've been next to LeBron. I've been next to some pretty big dudes. And Suge Knight, appearance wise is the biggest person I've ever seen in my life. Like, yeah. I mean, he just has a, an aura, a stature about him that is gigantic. Uh, so I decided you never exchange to, words. Nah, I decided yeah. not to. I talked to Jimmy. I, I spent a, a fair amount of time with Jimmy. Um, I have been, but not Suge, man. No, 
Not at that time. Yeah, word. Well, I'll be curious. All things Death Row, I tend to watch for better and worse, and, and we'll see how it plays out. Um, but one other thing before we talk about new music that I'll bring up, um, you know, Madlib, who's another kind of evasive figure, uh, has been in the press again. Um, Madlib, you know, you and I talked about it a few episodes ago. Talib Kweli and Madlib put out a sequel to their Liberation mixtape album from mid-2000s, and it is exclusive to Luminary, where uh, Talib's audio podcast uh, with Dave Chappelle and Yasin Bey appears, um, The Midnight Miracle, as well as the audio to his The People's Party podcast and Black Star album last year. But they're doing some press for it. So they hit Sway and they Sway in the morning and they hit Ebro in the morning. And Madlib, a man of very few words, um, admitted that he's got some projects in the tuck. And a few of them um, presumably are made with the artists. Uh, he says he's got something with Planet Asia, who he's worked with before. Something with Euro Droog, who he's worked with before. Something that this excites me. I'm curious of your thoughts. He's got a project with Erica Badu. And he's worked with her on the two new America albums. Would you be down for a Mad Lib Badu album? For sure. For sure. Would love that. Would love that. Same. Um, but he also confirmed the existence of two albums with, you know, you and I talked about Nipsey with folks that are not here. One is with Mac Miller. Um, and that album, you know, I, I think even before Mac had passed, might have been right after, was rumored to be called Mac Lib, a play on both of their names. Um, and when that news of that hit immediately representation from Madlib at the time said don't call it that you know this is hyperbolic you know something to the same point we're making has been taken out of context um but it seems like they're going to move forward with that and even Talib Kweli revealed that the song on Liberation 2 that features Mac Miller Madlib had given both Talib and uh Mac that beat and they both had rapped to it so in working with his estate, they combine those versions to make a special collaboration, which I think is kind of cool. Um, but what's going to mean a lot to a lot of fans is that there's confirmation that they're trying to move forward with the second Mad Villain album, which, you know, for fans of MF Doom, and we did a whole episode after he passed in 20, our episode was in 2021. Um, that's one of his most beloved projects. The two of them came together for one album in 2004 kind of made as a one-off but they kept recording sporadically and madlib says there's about 10 joints and um between sway and ebro you know he spoke that um it's demo-y stuff but they want to see it through and in a conversation last year or in 2021 after doom had passed peanut butter wolf who founded stones throw records that put out the first mad villain album said that it's largely in the hands of um uh, Sadiq, who is the co-founder of Rhyme Sayers, which is, you know, huge label, Atmosphere, Brother Ali, etc., where um, Doom had also put out some music. So, you know, posthumous music is always complicated, but, you know, Doom was such a great artist. We've seen some special verses from him over the last two so years. Um, if this hits the light, it's obviously something that I'm eager to check for. What about you? Yeah, I agree, man. I think I think it can go either way. There's a lot of posthumous music that I refuse to listen to. Like I haven't really listened to much of any posthumous Tupac music uh, aside from the Machiavelli project, which I consider to be not posthumous because it was, you know, he he was fully here uh, to he was here fully to um, you know A and R and and make sure it came out the way he wanted it. 
But uh, I think that when it's done well, it can be done well with someone who knows the artist and cares. And so I think about what DJ Premier did with that last Gangstar album. I think about what uh, Dr. Dre did or Alchemist did with the Nipsey Hussle um, music um, for, for Dr. Dre. There are some posthumous uh, releases that I think can be really, really good. And I think Mad Lib, having worked with Doom as long and closely as he did, I think they lived together for a while. Like, yeah. And I think that I think that it could be special. So we'd love to hear it. Yeah, I mean, Mad Lib, the other thing that he said I thought was interesting is he is completely in control of his own career now. So, you know, I mentioned uh, Peanut Butter Wolf. Um, you know, Mad Lib was the flagship artist of Stone's Throw for well over a decade. And then in the last, feels like 10 years, he was with Egon, who was the GM of Stone's Throw. And last year, you know, we reported on the story, um, several people, including Talib Kweli and including Doom's widow Jasmine, had alleged that Egon was holding on to possessions of Doom's, including a rhyme book. And I don't know if one's related to the other, but Madlib and Egon seem to have parted ways. The thing that I think is interesting about that is um, if Madlib is truly the only person that is in control of his career, I wonder if it will manifest projects that may not have happened otherwise. And when you hear a list of Planet Asia and Droog or Badu, it just makes you wonder. Um, so I'm really curious because that's one of the most prolific producers and artists in hip hop and, and certainly um, one of the most interesting and curious. And if it means we're gonna get more Mad Lib music, well, buckle up, I'm here for it. For sure, man. And the Black Star album was amazing. And this Talib album is really dope too, man. I yeah. really dig it, so. Cool, man. So uh, new. speaking of new music, there's there's a lot today was active. Um, yeah. So one of my favorites, one that I've been anticipating in a, for a long time in a way that I haven't anticipated an album in maybe since like the Kendrick album was Larry June and the Alchemist. They released oh. an album called The Great Escape. For those who don't know Larry June, he's from the Bay Area, um, San Francisco. Uh, he's been around for a long time. I watched a few interviews this week. I didn't realize, I knew he's been around for a minute. Every artist, like we said last week, has been around for at least seven years before they start to bubble up like this. Mm -hmm. He's been around, around for like 15 years. Um, father was in the industry and uh, he's got something like 15 mixtapes already or, or albums. Um, he's got a lot of projects under his belt. I really kind of tuned into him maybe a year or two ago. Um, Jay Worthy um, did a lot of collaborations with him. I think they had a collaborative album. That's kind of when I really tapped into him. And then his album last year um, was a Spaceship Chronicles or something like that. Um, Bleed, uh, Bleed, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, was uh, was amazing, uh, and, and it was heavy, heavily featured on our playlist uh, for um, the majority of last year. But he's a real spaceships on the blade, just to get it right. Spaceships on the blade, yeah, real laid back, cool, simple flow, but really drops jewels in there. Uh, reminds me a lot of Nipsey in that you know he he really puts a lot of game into it, and but has a very simplistic flow like Nipsey did too. Um, and Alchemist, you know, obviously we've talked about Alchemist. He is a perennial staple on our playlist. Like I, I don't know that there's been a, a day in the last three years that didn't have an Alchemist track on our playlist. Uh, he's he's that much. But I wanted to like just just pull out a couple of like quotes from Larry just to like draw that Nipsey comparison in terms of the messaging. You know, we talked a lot about Nipsey at the top of this, 
and how he was about independence and self-empowerment. And you hear that a lot in Larry's music. So in his song, Turkish Cotton, he says, uh, start a corporation and bet on yourself every time. And then on Summer Rain, he says, how are you going to say you boss if you don't handle your biz? Uh, real men stay on 10, take care of their kids. You boys talking too much. It's time to show them ends. I did shows around the globe and never took a cent. That might have went over your head. I'd be thinking different. I bought real estate before I went and bought the bent. I had sun toes when you was in your feelings. And I didn't need no record deal to touch my first million. Spending money on assets for rainy days. I'm more focused on ownership, not the fame. Boom. And then on Solid Plan, he says, the streets don't love you. Brother, get some bread. Stop complaining, my brother. Go hard instead. Invest in yourself. F what they saying. You can accomplish anything with a solid plan. Like just it's motivational, inspirational, and you know, all about believing in yourself and controlling your own destiny, which is what I love. For sure. I mean, Larry is a case example of it's what you're saying, not how you say it. Like, you know, he is not the most technically, you know, like he's not going to bar you to death. But it just even as you read that, I'm like, that is food for thought. This is great music. It's great music for the car. I love that you said like he's got a 15 year story um, at one point, you know, was on Warner Brothers, was on a major, but he's finding success on his own terms from being authentic. And you know, especially when you combine Alchemist production, he doesn't sound like a typical Bay Area artist, doesn't have that kind of aggressive feel or the selection of beats that you might expect. But when you think about the independence, um, the way he talks about like stacking up and getting his money and his relationship with women, he definitely fits in the canon of your E40s and your Drew Downs and your rapping Fortes. And I really like that. And to me, Alchemist is so prolific right now, you know, coming off of his Grammy nominated stuff with Freddie Gibbs, you know, doing, um, you know, doing what he did with Rock Marciano and Armand Hammer. These beats sound like they are 100% made for Larry June. And this album has a really diverse guest list, too. Um, you know, he's got uh, Evidence, Joey Badass, Big Sean, Currency, Boldy James, Wiz Khalifa, the guy who you just mentioned, Jay Worthy out of Compton. Um, he's got Slum Village, T3, and Young RJ are on here. It's a, Action Bronson, on and on. It's just a really, really, really good project. And I was I was thinking a lot, like, you know, we're a fourth into the year, and I know it's brand new today, but I've well, listened. Before you get into that, you, you made one other point that I think is worth drawing out about Larry, about, like, how he takes care of his mental and his body. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and as I said recently, you know, I did a, Larry was another case. I did a press bio for him during the pandemic when he put out the orange print, which was kind of his take on like the blueprint and the black print and like every artist His, if you ever look at Larry June on Instagram, he, he uses the orange, which is perfect because it's what I'm about to, he's big on health. Like he raps a lot about, um, you know, clean eating his, one of his biggest song is smoothies in 91. You know, that was his like breakthrough record back in 2019, as far as this iteration of Larry that we're seeing. Um, but he'll talk about meditating and working out and riding a bike, like stuff that I feel like five years ago or six years ago or 10 years ago, if you and I were having this conversation around other people, like that would sound very foreign to, 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 to like the rap content conversation but i love it because 
you know, you and I are both like, we'll have conversations about our health and our diet and all of that. And the fact that Larry's doing that at the same time, you know, just like currency, big on car wrap, big on, you know, describing vivid imagery, especially the Bay Area of taking long drives, even down to his artwork. Like it's a whole aesthetic and it's a whole vibe. And he and Alchemist worked together a lot in recent years, but to see them truly share the billing on a project, what I was about to say is this is my front runner right now for my favorite album of 2023, um, hands down. And to watch Larry, somebody who's a veteran, who even on this record, he says he was broke in 2017, to watch him really take an ascent like this, um, you love to see it. And he's managed now, he has been for some time, by David Ali, who he shouts out on the record, which is um, Kalani's manager. Um, so he's he's in a good system now to watch this type of of rap really get its get its its share in the market. Yeah, you talk about his healthy lifestyle. You know, I mentioned last week that they have a documentary out. It's a 15 minute uh, clip that shows you the behind the scenes recording of this project, and you know. Unlike most instances where, you know, the recording is happening at night in a like dark environment, no windows, often there's like chemicals like involved. Most of what you see is them. They're at a house that is overlooking a beach. And it sounds like based off the project, they were in Mexico recording this and it's daylight and they're just rapping like, you know, they're just working like fully like uh, present uh in a very healthy environment so it's pretty dope and i agree with you right now this is definitely my album of the year so far you know and i've only listened to it like once all the way through i gotta i gotta spend some more time with it i'm sure it's gonna grow on me even more because al's beats are so complex sometimes it takes a minute for them to open up but yeah man really really dope project uh definitely met my expectations so far and looking forward to digging in more yeah, and you shout out some songs. I'll just close this part of the conversation. My favorite is actually where the album ends, Margie's Candy House, which kind of I equate, like I always thought the deepest song on Reasonable Doubt was Regrets. Like for people that say that Jay-Z didn't show vulnerability until later in his career, Regrets nullifies that statement every single time. And you know- um, Top five Jay song for me, by the way. It's incredible. Yeah. And in, in shout out to my man, Luke, who texted me this morning about the podcast. He put me onto it back in the 90s. But um, this song, you know, it actually deals with a little bit of regret. It's about Larry talking, I think, about his grandmother's passing and not being able to attend her funeral and the jewels that she gave him. And it's just like, I'm always curious how artists end albums these days. Like, you know, do you, do you just make it like a, hey, you know, part two coming soon? Or do you really bookend and emphasize it? And there's this this song, this album is 45 minutes long. It's great in the car, but it ends with an emotional crescendo. And I really like the song, and it's one of the best Alchemist beats on there, too. Yeah, no, super dope. Uh, I, I love that. And also the song with Evidence, which you mentioned, uh, Left No Evidence. Like, he is Ev, man. He and Alchemist just have just that special. He said it himself, like, uh, I, I, I rap with Evan Alchemist because Alchemist and his uh, his beats inspire me. Uh, I can't remember the exact term. I rhyme to Alchemist beats because others don't inspire me. Don't Something inspire like that. Me, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I'll throw it all away. That was the yeah, joke. yeah, exactly. So you, you can hear it though. Super dope. Absolutely. So you know, another artist that I I would say is absolutely at the top of their game right now is Tyler the Creator, and this is interesting because I look at Tyler, and I will be the first one to tell you I was not. 
I was a huge fan of the early days of Odd Futures movement into the mainstream. Like, you know, Yonkers. I yeah, Yonkers. And, and I, I remember watching and rewatching and watching again the Jimmy Fallon appearance with, you know, Yasin Bey and obviously like the Roots and Tyler jumping on Jimmy's back. And, you know, at the time, Earl Sweatshirt, you know, had put out some videos, but Earl, you know, was living in like a youth camp, I think, in, in the Pacific. So he wasn't there on the TV. But I remember being aware of those guys and I thought they were interesting. But I won't I won't sit here and act like the Odd Future tape and some of those sound clouds were my guiding light at, in the early 2010s. They weren't. I was far more interested at that time of what Kendrick was doing and Big Crit and Blue and J. Cole, so on and so forth. But watching Tyler in particular these last few years has been remarkable because, I mean, he said it himself in January of 2020 when he won for best rap album, I believe, for Flower Boy. And we covered it on the site is, you know, he felt very pigeonholed because that wasn't really a rap album. That being said, he won again last year for Call Me uh, If You Get Lost, uh, which, in my opinion, not just my opinion, but in a lot of opinions was Tyler's return to rap and he structured it as a DJ drama, Gangsta Grills. Drama was very much a part of it. And that was a moment, right? And it was, you know, it won and huge deal. But I look at a, an artist like Tyler that, you know, changes from six months to six months and is so inspired and so passionate and just like all of his albums are, are moments. He went and took an album that was two years old and released um, like close to 10 new songs from it, from that same project. DJ Drama is very much a part of it. And he didn't just do it as like a, oh, you know, we're putting it on a vinyl. Here's two new songs. He did videos for at least three of the songs, self-directed them. These are big budget videos. But, you know, you were the one this week who kind of brought it to my attention. Tell me what you thought when you saw what Tyler was up to with this. Man, so I had a few thoughts. So first of all, and Drama said this recently on an interview with Sway, Tyler is one of the most underappreciated rappers of his generation. You know, you hear about Kendrick Cole and Drake all the time, but Tyler can rap. Yeah. Like he can rap, rap. He bars his ass off a lot of times. And you just don't hear that because I think that his antics sometimes overshadow his lyrical ability. And it's not just his antics either. It's his musical diversity because Flower Boy was a very melodic album and Igor even more so, you know, and so... You know, I think that sometimes it gets lost in the sauce that this dude can really rap. You heard it in Yonkers, uh, but, you know, in this project, it seemed like he he did it. He definitely went out of his way to do that with, with it being a Gangster Girls project. And on the new songs, especially Sorry Not Sorry, you hear it even more. The other thing, though, that struck me is that that video is so incredibly creative. Dogtooth was creative, too, but but Sorry Not Sorry features a bunch of different Tylers in it. And it's, it's Tyler dressed in different eras of his career. And they're all kind of in conflict with one another. And it supports the themes of the song, which talks about the conflicting messages he's given out, uh, you know, over the years, particularly about his sexuality. And it ends with him literally just brutalizing one of one of himself. Like uh, it's Tyler just like beating, bludgeoning himself, um, which is a really just crazy, jarring image but the whole thing is just visually stunning. And it strikes me because so much of what we see now in rap videos, which is why we stopped covering a lot of them, is just 
somebody's standing out in the street rapping next to a car or, you know, with a bunch or in a strip club or, you know, on the corner or whatever it is. And it's just completely uninspired, right? Like, it's like, what's the point of doing it except to like, maybe get a second bite at the apple in terms of the release of the project. Whereas Tyler uh, holds it up as an art form and and shows why music videos are as compelling as they are when done correctly. He's one of the few that still does it. And I think it's just a testament to his all-around creativity that, the, that he does this. But this project, to your point, feels much more, it feels like much more than just a bonus deluxe version. It feels almost like a, a second side to, a, to a, a dope album. Yeah, I mean, I'm really curious what Tyler does from this point forward. And it does make me wonder of like, I'm looking right now, you know, seven, eight new songs. Um, including, you know, Vince Staples, YG, ASAP Rocky. You know, I just mentioned Erica Badu when she did those two volumes of New America. He could have just as easily put this out as its own album. Um, but I'm wondering for Tyler, who's been so fast evolving, if he's going to stay in this lane. And, you know, I know I just gave the superlatives to Larry and Al and deservingly so. But if you put this out as another name for it, this the this clip of songs is is some of the best music I've heard this year, hands down. Word, word. So uh, that and and Larry June, you know, check for both. You know, DJ Drama also put out his own project, and you know, I got to say, DJ Drama has got a chip on his shoulder. I listened to a couple interviews. I listened to one with Sway, and then another, I think, on the Breakfast Club. But you know, he's he's sticking his chest out. And he's got a right to, you know, this guy has done over 250 mixtapes over the years, uh, ran into some trouble and like even some legal troubles because of the mixtapes. But, you know, survived that and even came out stronger. And over the last couple of years, he's taken more of a behind the scenes position. You know, he hasn't put out a bunch of albums or mixtapes. Instead, uh, you know, he obviously did the Tyler album. He did the vocals on that um, a couple of years ago, but he's really been focused on his label. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that his two artists are Lil Uzi Vert, one of the most successful artists of the last seven, eight years, and Jack Harlow, one of the most successful artists of the last three years or so. That, that, that is a that's an incredible record and a huge accomplishment just of its own. Uh, but he, on top of that, he won a Grammy with the Tyler Project um, a couple of years ago. And, you know, so he's just put out his own, his new album, his first album in a minute. And he's, he's, he's talking his ish throughout saying, listen, y'all, y'all thought I disappeared because I'm behind the scenes. Now I'm better than ever. And he made the point, listen, like I got two albums coming out on the same day. He's got this, this, um, this uh, bonus version of the Tyler album and his own album and his album is star studded. It's like a Khaled project, but, um, you know, it's in, it's in drama's voice rather than Khaled and very much his aesthetic. And it's got Benny, West Side Gun, Sci High the Prince, La Russell, who is one of my favorites this year. He's one of my favorite MCs I've discovered in the last year. If you haven't heard of him, check it, check him out on our Spotify playlist. Got a couple of great projects that he's dropped already this year. Um, the Omaha winner uh, is is one of my favorites too this year. You put me on um, that, yeah. Tyler, of course, is on it. Benny the Butcher, Fabulous, Jim Jones, Rick Ross. He's got an uh, an unreleased verse from Nipsey, which sounds great. Lil Wayne, Wiz Khalifa, Simba sounds great. Jeezy, Jack Harlow, Uzi, of course, T.I. 
and then and, and more like that's just like the the afh oriented yeah box. right uh, and I it, mean, it the thing of it is i mean drama's a hip-hop guy like you know he's 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 had a successful run in in trap or whatever you want to call it but the first time like the world saw dj drama was in a bahamadia video like his roots are in culture and it definitely does seem like he has a chip on his shoulder and, and not for nothing. I mean, drama has always been one of the greatest ish talkers. That's what made his mixtape so compelling. But I look and I mean, we're coming off of a year where DJ Khaled was nominated for best rap album, you know, on a, on a DJ compilation project. And I will argue that drama to me, this is just to me has had a bigger moment on his albums when he put outcast together for the art of storytelling for like that was insane. But one thing I'll say is I don't think drama's ever had the level of albums that Khaled has. I think that there's always been stops in play. And this one, um, you know, because he's put out Gangsta Girls, the album and three or four other ones. This one feels really full and checks all those different boxes of of drama's tastes in his fandom. And that last song with Sci High and La Russell is insane. I played that three times today already. And I you added it to the playlist. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I added like four songs from this. I almost had a fifth, but I got to check myself. I try and only do four maximum project because I don't want to just become like an album heavy playlist, but it's that good. And I tend to do more when there's many different artists. Um, And to your point, like I think that Khaled has bigger moments on his albums. Um, There's always a huge moment like uh you know um Nas album done and obviously all I do is win yeah all I do is win and God did last year um you know but I think in terms of consistency and like overall quality of the album I think the drama drama got this one yeah and I just mean for me like that wasn't a slight in any way to neither yeah. college nor drama but I just remember 2007 you know a year removed from Idlewild drama got the outcast record that i had wanted since stankonia you know like all love due to speaker box and love below all love to idlewild but when he got the art of storytelling four i was like this is insane you know and 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 not for nothing too i mean he's been putting out a ton of gangster grills and like i've just been playing a lot of the g perico one he's brought his brand back in full swing and to the point you alluded to you know, it wasn't that long ago. I guess it was, you know, 2007 when the feds, you know, it looked like it could be over for him and Don Cannon. And it, instead, these guys have weathered this storm, continue to make great mixtapes and built a label. You Two of the biggest stars of right now and Uzi and Jack and not for nothing. I mean, drama, even before quality control was out here trying to get Migos signed. And then in the end, they ended up going with QC. But like, his ear for talent and diversity is in, in, insane. It's crazy. It's crazy. So another beloved AFH figure dropped a project this week. You want to talk about that? Yeah, Royce the Five Nine. Um, so you know Royce has as good of a three album run currently as I can think of. Um, you know from 2016's Layers, 2018's The Book of Ryan, and 2020's The Allegory. I mean, all three of those albums are among the best of their years. I would personally say the book of Ryan is one of the best albums of the last decade. Um, And he's got that intact. And last year he kind of did a greatest hits of recent, recent era Royce, put some new songs on it. You had one, I believe it was called black lives matter with big crit. It was on the playlist for much of last year. And now he's returned with a six song EP called the heaven experience, which was the same title he used last year. These are all new songs. Um, and there's one currently atop our playlist 
with Redman uh, titled uh, Royce and Reggie, um, which is I didn't I was trying to see if they had ever worked together before back in 2012 before I was ever in the mix. They did a song that AFH covered with Bun B, but this is the first time it's ever just been those two guys. And it's a really cool moment. Um, Royce is not producing this this project. Um, he's brought in some guests, including Justice League and DJ Payne One. But uh, yeah, it's a really enjoyable listen. What what jumped out at you? Yeah, you know, I haven't listened to the whole project yet. I like yeah. Royce and Reggie for sure. But I got to go back and listen to this one. I, I was on a, a, a drama and and Tyler and uh, Larry June wave this morning. Absolutely. Yeah. It is hard to shift. And totally. Well, I listened to it two times. And, and you know, there's a lot of fans out there that love to see the merging of two legends. So, of course, for AFH, we covered the Royce and Reggie, you know, song. But the one that really sticks out to me is Grown Ass Man. And it very much reminds me of Boblo Boat which is, you know, I just mentioned the Book of Ryan being one of the best songs of the last 10 years. Royce has almost the same flow, that stream of consciousness, but he's sharing things about his past. That song lives up to its title and is definitely one of the highlights for me. Dope, dope. I can't wait to listen to that. I'm sure I'll add it to the playlist too. But... And one, one more thing I'll just mention of new music is DJ Quick, an artist that you and I um, hold in high regard has also just let a long time go without putting out new music. You know, he and Problem teamed up for the Rosecrans. They had two EPs and then an LP, but it wasn't, I think it was 2015 where he put out The Midnight Life. Um, But he put out a new single today called Class. And, you know, there's a story on Rock the Bells on him clearing the sample to the song. But what I love about it is he reminds people, DJ Quick reminds people that DJ Quick is a DJ you don't hear enough scratching in records in 2023 and he scratches up the sample really nice in that record. And, um, you know, for 32 years now, since quick is the name, it's good just to hear, or, or what was it? Was the first time quick is the name or, or born and raised in Compton? Yeah. Quick is the name. Quick yeah. is the name. Um, you know, just, just never fails to deliver. So I've been listening to that one a bunch today too. Quick is one of my all time favorites, man. Um, I love G-Funk. It's probably my favorite genre within hip-hop. And Dre and Quick are, are the two at the Mount Rushmore for me. Warren, too, and Big Hutch. I mean, there's so many, but I hear you. Yeah, Battle Cat. Like, yeah. There's, there's a lot, you know. Yeah. So, so yo, um, all right, all this new music. What's your song of the week? It's actually one we didn't talk about, but you put it on the playlist. It's a song that involves Jay Cyanide and Kev Brown. And I hope I'm saying this right. I'll see Noose who's a, a French producer, Parental and Loopholes. His song's called Slipping Time. I've always loved what Jay Sinai and Kev Brown do together. Um, been a fan of Kev since the early days, you know, 20-some years ago when him and Odyssey and the low-budget crew. But that song, I just can't stop playing it. I sent it to you as a song of the day. Always love it when you when you like something enough to put it on the playlist. But song, the rhymes, the beats, it's just been perfect to me. But that's mine. What's yours? Yeah, that's a super dope one. Thank you for sending that. For me, it's Solid Plan, Larry June and the Alchemist featuring Action Bronson. Uh, you know, I read the lyrics to that. Super inspirational. Uh, I think we all need that. That's why we did the podcast last week. It's, it's why I love artists like Larry and Nipsey and, uh, you know, anyone who, like, is on that grind and talks about it. I love it. So, yeah, that's my one. I'm going to make that my song of the day. So that one, that one's it. That's cool, sure. man. Well, you can hear it in my voice. That's our time. 
Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed talking about it. The music 2023 is heating up. It's only going to get better from here. Yeah, man. Well, I hope you feel better. Thank you. Until next week, until we do it again. Thank you for everyone for listening and watching and, and peace. Word. Peace. Peace.